Protesters took to the streets all throughout the last week in cities and towns across the country in outraged response to the Supreme Court's draft ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, which was heroically leaked to the public before it was finalized. We'll also discuss the latest updates on the war in Ukraine, elections in the Philippines and Northern Ireland, Amazon being challenged in the halls of Congress, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's May 10th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Walter Smolarik and Esther Ibarum. Brian Becker is out today. Esther Ibarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. This last week, like I said in the introduction, people have been throughout the streets, throughout the country, have been just absolutely livid, outraged at what happened with the leaked opinion, Esther, from the Supreme Court. There were more than 30 cities just this weekend, from Friday to Monday, yesterday, over 30 cities had protests, including places that you might not expect, like Anchorage, Alaska, five cities in Indiana, of course, the home of Mike Pence, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, three cities in Texas where SB 8 was passed. I mean, this notorious bill that, you know, really kicked off this most recent round of protests before the opinion was leaked. Austin, Fort Worth and Houston, Texas and Dallas had protests during the week last week. People are taking to the streets. Clearly, there are so many people around the country who are outraged about this. And of course, it makes sense because, you know, even recent polling shows that at least 72 percent of Americans support Roe v. Wade, this decision that came down from the Supreme Court 50 years ago. Of course, the majority of the public support it. But even if they didn't, Esther, this is such an important right for women to have. You know, this is essentially the Supreme Court declaring war against women. Absolutely. And even people who are regular liberals and Democrats in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, they've been speaking out in their own way to make it plain that when you take away a woman's right to choose, you're basically making her a second-class citizen so that for a complete nine months or 10 months of her life, she has no control or say over her own body. And I think that the outrage, the type of demonstrations that we're seeing, it's coming because it's showing the hypocrisy of not only the court, but also of all these elected officials in Washington, because they are basically forcing women to give birth. It's a big decision to force someone to 
give birth to a child. At the same time, when we know these same legislatures, these you know corporate bought politicians here are not extending the child tax credit, they are not ensuring that you have health care for your child. I even saw a story on Monday about the Texas governor trying to oppose funding public education so that the state wouldn't even be responsible for educating your child, but they want to force you to have a child in the economic crisis that many families find ourselves. You know, the idea that the government egged on really by the church and religious fanatics are going to force women to have a child is just, I think that's fueled the outrage that you're hearing and that you're seeing. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And I want to expand on something you were just saying, because I think it's such a good point. And it's so important to look at when you're trying to figure out, well, why on earth would the government be doing this? Like, why would the Supreme Court be deciding to overrule this this decision? And why hasn't Congress done anything about it, you know, up until this point? And I think what you're highlighting is really important that the same government is saying, if you're pregnant, you don't have a right to decide essentially not only what happens with your body, but the course of your own life. You don't have the right to decide what your future is going to look like, not only your future, but the future of your family, your partner, your current children, or your, you know, your possible future children. You don't have the right to decide any of that. But like you said, the same government is making policies like not extending the child tax credit. Like we talked about last week on the show, the same government is making decisions to send billions of dollars of weapons to kill other people's children, to kill other people in a war that's not even on this continent overseas. That's a U.S. proxy war at this point. You know, they're making decisions to send money there instead of funding people who are uninsured here in this country during a pandemic for COVID care, even just for COVID testing, these basic things that will protect not only the uninsured, but the rest of the country as well, the rest of the people living here who are trying to stay free of the coronavirus. You know, the same government under child protective services or human services departments are, you know, regularly taking people's children rather than providing people with housing, like, you know, food on the table, like these basics, or even a job. You know, during the pandemic, so many people lost their jobs. And not only is the moratorium on evictions gone at this point, even though so many people are still without homes or so many people are still dealing with back rent, but there are more empty homes in this country than there are people who need homes. Like it really starts to show you when you put all of these things together, it starts to show you what the government is here to do and what it's not here to do. And it's very clear that these laws all add up and these Supreme Court decisions all add up to show us that we are not the ones who are being prioritized. This government isn't working for us. No, absolutely. And I think as we discussed before, when we initially discussed this case in Mississippi, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, We talked about that kind of in a historical sense in the way that the Supreme Court, as you said, is a political institution and it has over the course of the centuries made all kinds of decisions that we know are anti-democratic in terms of upholding slavery, upholding Jim Crow laws. And it just reminded me that when it comes to this issue of forced birth, that in upholding slavery, the court at that time upheld that black women who were enslaved, you know, did not have control of our bodies and not only of our bodies, but of our children, of our babies that were often taken from us, snatched from us and sold off like they were like a head of cattle or something. And when 
we talk about this country being built on slavery and genocide, a significant part of that building is precisely this process of forcing Black women to give birth, often giving birth to the child of her rapist, and then to have that child, like I said before, the issue of her womb taken away as a commodity to create more enslaved people, you know, to be worked, you know, often to their death. So this issue of forced birth, we really want to kind of dig into that history and also remember that when this case was initially argued that Justice Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett, who was appointed just weeks before the 2020 election by, you know, Trump and, you know, Mitch McConnell, make sure she her confirmation was rammed through. She brought up the whole issue of of adoption. And she said, well, why couldn't these women who were pregnant just give up their children for adoption? And she's a person who has adopted several children. And I know you'll remember that we read pieces of an adoptee, a woman named Elizabeth Spears, who wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times pointing out that adoption is infinitely more difficult. Carrying a child and carrying a pregnancy to term and then putting up that child for adoption is more difficult, expensive, dangerous, and potentially traumatic for a woman or a girl than an abortion during early stages. But this adoption theme is a consistent theme on the far right. And if we have a chance, I want us to play a few clips from Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, who was on CNN Sunday, really hammering this point home, I thought. And, you know, this is something that we need to watch and listen out for as these extremists try to force women to give birth. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine a more undemocratic anti-people organization institution than the Supreme Court. I mean, how ridiculous, how absurd is it that nine elite ruling class lawyers get to decide the fate of over 160 million women in the United States, the fate of anybody who needs an abortion. And it's not even all nine of them. I mean, it's five of those nine people. They're appointed for life. Nobody gets to elect them. There's no popular vote that determines who gets to be on the Supreme Court. They do have to be confirmed by the Senate, but the Senate itself is an extremely undemocratic institution. It was designed to be undemocratic. And in fact, even senators weren't popularly elected, directly elected by the people until the 20th century. And they're appointed for life. They get lifetime terms. And so really the only thing that triggers the appointment, the selection of a new Supreme Court justice is if they die or or they retire. And so it's completely a matter of luck which president gets to nominate their replacement, right? So Donald Trump got really lucky. He got to nominate three Supreme Court justices and the Republicans controlled the Senate and they voted to confirm those justices. And now they're poised I mean, hopefully the masses of people taking to the streets will stop this. And I I have confidence if that keeps up that it will stop this. But they seem poised right now to do something that the vast majority of people in this country reject, overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, Roe versus Wade is popular. A large majority by pretty much every opinion poll out there says that we do not support the evisceration of abortion rights at the federal level. But that's exactly what they want to do. And they have no accountability whatsoever to the huge number of people whose lives they're ruining. What you're saying, Walter, I think is so true. And it's part of this is because of how widespread 
you know, this use of healthcare, this abortion access is one in four American women has an abortion before the age of 45. You know someone who has had one. And these are life-saving measures. It's of the people who have abortions in this country, more than 70% of them have it because they essentially have to, they need to for financial reasons, for, you know, these like very important, like, how is my life going to look reasons? How can I actually make sure to take care of not only myself, but also this child reasons? So, I mean, this is a very, very basic right, you know, that Esther, I think, talked about very importantly as, you know, being this right to your own, your own body and your own future and your own, you know, your own livelihood, your own destiny in a way that men are not controlled in this society. There's such a cultural war around abortion that is completely unnecessary because it's actually just a class war. It's very purely a gender and class and race issue. That's what it is. It doesn't need to be a cultural thing. It doesn't need to be science or not science. It doesn't need to be what's the point of viability? What's the point of conception? The reality is one in four women before the age of 45 will get an abortion. And the majority of people in this country support Roe v. Wade. And when you look back at the roots of why this is the case, this harkens back to women being essentially owned as property. Like Esther said, when you look back in this country in particular and in, in other countries that had participated in the egregious and disgusting slave trade, you look at people being owned and collected and used as property in that time. You can also look at the point at which women were owned as property, even when the men weren't enslaved, when women were owned as property, essentially to have kids and have men be able to have some way to pass down their surplus, their property to their male heirs. Esther, I want to play the clips that you mentioned. I think they're really appalling. We've got two clips from over the weekend, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, with Jake Tapper interviewing Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves. And the next phase of the pro-life movement is about what are we doing to help those babies that, that maybe are, yeah. you know, they do go to full term, that, that, that the moms do have. And what we're trying to do is, is focus on uh, uh, making adoption easier in Mississippi. We're focusing on improving our foster care system. We've had so, challenges in the past, and we recognize that, so, and we admit that. I want to play the second clip, and Esther, I want to get your response. I mean, already you can hear, you know, essentially the Mississippi state is realizing and trying to quickly correct this very clear and glaring massive error in their calculations and their politics because, you know, you can't have these people fighting for forced birth if, you know, it's very obvious that the state isn't taking care of the babies that are born once that actually happens. So he's talking about this foster care system when the foster care system in, I mean, all the states I'm familiar with is horrendous and is extremely difficult to actually get people where they need to be. Let's play this second clip and then I'll come to you. Just to be clear, the state of Mississippi, you're not going to then target uh, IUD or Plan B, which are methods of birth control that might not allow a fertilized egg to be implanted. And this is not a theoretical construct. This is not, a, a you know, it, the state of Louisiana, which I recognize is a neighboring state, not your state. I mean, they're talking about uh, not only criminally charging uh, girls and women who get abortions uh, as, you know, as, as being committing homicide, but they're also talking about defining the moment uh, of conception as fertilization which would theoretically, if this were to become the law of Louisiana, and it is not yet, uh, mean that murder, if you use an IUD, you are committing murder theoretically. So it's, it's not 
I'm not making this up. This is these are the conversations going on in legislatures in your in your area. But so just to be clear, you have no intention of seeking to ban IUDs or Plan B. That that is not what we are focused on at this time. We're we're focused on uh, looking at see what the court allows for. Uh, the the bill that is before the court is a 15 week ban. We we believe that that the overturning of Roe is the correct decision by the court. <laughs> Well, so there's so much there to comment on. So maybe I should take the second part first and then go back to the actual state of Mississippi. And it's important that he was grilled on this question around birth control because many experts, people looking at this issue, believe that the way this draft Supreme Court opinion is written, it leaves open the possibility that birth control could be attacked next. It leaves open the possibility that if states want to, they can use this supposed lack of a right to privacy (laughs) to uh, look at when does a life begin. And if it begins at conception, that means that forms of birth control like IUD or Plan B, as was mentioned in the clip, could also be targeted. And women could be targeted if they have miscarriages. And we'll talk about that later. But I just think it's so important that we see in this kind of statement from the governor of Mississippi that they are talking about all these ways that they know that they are woefully insufficient in terms of caring for a child once it's here that the so-called pro-life movement is being caught out there for the hypocrites that they are because pro-life for them only means when the a fetus is inside the uterus. But when the child is born, Mississippi, you know, has some of the worst outcomes and life statistics for people being, you know, first, if not close to first in infant mortality, poverty, their legislators just passed a bill that would ban Medicaid for postpartum care. So once you have a child in Mississippi, if you're poor, working class, you're on Medicaid, they don't um, care for you. We know that many of these states like Mississippi that are enacting all these bans, they are the same states that did not pass Medicaid expansion. You know, they have very poor education. They are number one, like I said, in poverty. So those statements are really important and they really point out the the moment that we're in and what we have to continue to fight against this hypocrisy and this attempt to force women to give birth into a system that doesn't care for the child or them afterward. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. And I mean, there's so many issues when you talk about quote unquote pro-life. I mean, when you look at Mississippi, when you look at really any state in the country, you know, police harass and kill people with complete impunity. And that's not pro-life. I mean, that's not pro-happiness if you're harassing people. It's not pro-work if you're harassing people on the way to work. And it's certainly not pro-life if you're killing people and and if the state is letting police get away with that. And a major portion of police impunity has to do with the Supreme Court because they're the ones that have enacted this so-called qualified immunity (laughs) that has given a shield to these killer cops for so long. So we have to also put that in the Supreme Court column for anti-democratic things, especially that are not pro-life. 
And these same right wing anti choice, anti women bigots are also the ones who are, you know, putting kids in cages at the border and subjecting immigrants and refugees to such horrible conditions that, you know, death is so, so common along the US Mexico border and suffering and, and also death is so common in ICE and CBP detention facilities. I mean, just another reason why it's so ridiculous, such a crime that the right wing has been able to adopt or has the nerve to try to adopt a label pro life. Right. And also taking the children of those seeking asylum, you know, coming here. We can't forget that. And they were going to pay. They were going to try to provide some compensation for this terrible crime that you can't really be compensated for someone taking your child away, you know, for losing your child. But they were going to try to compensate families. And I think that the Biden administration even dropped that. Not to mention, you know, we could go on listing this, these very clear ways in which the U.S. government is not pro-life, these very clear ways that the right wing in this country is not pro-life, which includes a lot of Democrats, too, I should say. But there are just so many. I just want to list one more that is so egregious that someone brought up at a protest this weekend in front of the Supreme Court. The fact that the U.S. government not only actually did the action, but then supported killing half a million Iraqi children. I mean, the fact that the U.S. government has sanctions and embargoes and sends people overseas to kill other people in other countries, essentially for financial or political power reasons. I mean, none of those things are pro-life. None of those things are pro-life. All of those things are very much anti-life. All of those things are killing people or supporting killing people. Pro-life is let's provide everybody with the things that they need because we all need them. So why don't we work together to do those things and make sure that those things are the first thing, not the last thing to worry about, like housing, like food, like a job, like access to healthcare, access to transportation, all of these things that we don't actually have any access to in this current society in the United States. When one of the biggest industries in this country, instead of making sure that people have housing and basic rights and basic needs met, is the Northrop Grumman's and the Boeing's and the companies that make these massive and expensive nuclear weapons and fighter jets and essentially weapons of war and destruction. I mean, it just makes it so, so painfully clear what this government, what these quote unquote politicians, what they actually want and what they're actually here to fight for. And it's not for us. And that's why it's so important and so vital that there's so many people out in the streets, again, in over 30 cities just this weekend and many more last week, because there are real consequences on the line. And Esther, I want to play, I want to have you introduce a clip that you found that I think is so important for people who might not think that there are real consequences on the line, who might think, well, you know, even if, and there are some Democrats and nonprofits saying this, even if abortion isn't legal anymore, I mean, we've had so much more technology that has been built up over the last few decades since Roe was passed. You know, we don't really need legal abortions. We'll still have access to them. It's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. And there are a lot of reasons why. But why don't you take us in on this clip with Kate Smith? Right. So the other thing that people are saying also is that, you know, pre-Roe, there was still legal abortion in places like New York and, you know, other states. And in those states, abortion will continue to be legal per se, even though we have to keep our eye on Mitch McConnell because he's trying to uh, saber rattle about a national abortion ban, especially if the Republicans get back in power in terms of majorities in Congress and the White House. I think it's important, this piece is important because maybe not all of us realize that there are real dangers. 
Esther, that's a really good point. And just to be super clear, I think, you know, the U.S. legal system is so incredibly, I think, intentionally confusing. If Roe v. Wade does get overturned, which I think it's very clear, as Walter said, that this militant fight back is, you know, if we continue to stay in the streets, not going to happen. But what would happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned is that every state would be able to, on their own, just like Medicaid expansion, just like with so many other benefits, would be able to determine their own restrictions on on women's bodies on abortion access. So some states would still have abortion access, you know, fairly widely available, and many states would not. Um, but Mitch McConnell is proposing this federal abortion ban, which would ban things everywhere if passed. Esther, why don't you go ahead and introduce the clip now? So I listened to Kate Smith over the weekend on CNN. She was a CBS reporter, and now she works for Planned Parenthood. But as a reporter, she had a chance to go to El Salvador, where abortions have been outlawed. And she gives a little, I think, a really good synopsis of that trip and why it's important here. Yeah, that reporting trip to El Salvador was really eye-opening, and it really helped me put together the pieces of what I was seeing on the ground happening. And at the time, the the reporting trip was in 2019, so none of these six-week abortion bans, the really extreme ones that you see, had gone into place yet. And we were only hearing from doctors and politicians about what might happen if an abortion ban were to go into effect. When we went to El Salvador, what we saw is all of those things that these doctors and politicians had warned us about were happening in real time on the ground. I spoke to a doctor who in no uncertain terms told me that he has had patients die, has had patients die because he wasn't allowed to give them an abortion that would have saved their lives. We saw, we met with a doctor who was giving abortions illegally and he was saying there's been absolutely no difference in demand for abortions, whether it's legal or not. There's no difference. And then most you know, really like keeps me up at night is when I spoke to the women who were in prison for having an abortion. And there were some in there who had not seen their family in years because this prison is in such a dangerous place that their family can't visit. Mm. And they say they had a miscarriage and they woke up, they had an obstetric emergency and they wake up and they are shackled to, you know, to the hospital bed. And there is a police officer in there investigating them. And I can tell you, the doctors told me When they are looking at a patient, there is no way for them to tell the difference between an induced abortion and a spontaneous miscarriage. You can't tell the difference. That is a medical fact. And so, you know, it's just up to a judge to decide. And these people were saying they were innocent. And as a proof point, many of those patients, excuse me, many of those women who were in prison, they have since been released because there wasn't enough evidence to put them in prison. So, again, all of these things that we, you know, say might happen if abortion gets banned, if abortion becomes illegal, they do happen. This isn't a theory. We don't need to speculate. We have actual facts that can inform what happens. Right. So that's Kate Smith speaking on CNN. And just to add to that harrowing account she gives, when you want to add to the fact that in this country, we basically have empowered bounty hunters to track down women who are seeking an abortion, seeking abortion care, track down people, anyone who helped her get an abortion, anyone who helped maybe give her a ride to healthcare. You're really looking at a very harrowing and terrible, horrific situation for a lot of women in this country living in states where they are trying to take away these rights. Absolutely. I mean, I think what she's saying in that clip is so important. And before people hear that and say, oh, well, you know, the United States has a much better judicial system than El Salvador. The United States is never going to be like that. Well, 
we already know, and we have a story later in the show, there's already people who are sitting in jails for years before they actually get access to a trial. And then there's already people specifically, there's already women. Lizelle Herrera was the most recent in Texas who was arrested for an alleged abortion. And like the clip said, doctors aren't able to tell the difference between, you know, a self-induced abortion and a miscarriage. But there are still women who've been sitting in jail and prison for having a miscarriage already. So we know that that is the case and we know that's where we're headed. And that's where we're headed if Congress doesn't act, if the Supreme Court makes this horrendous decision. And that is all essentially weighing on whether this completely incredible and vital and dynamic movement in the streets continues. I want to also talk about, I mean, there's there's so many things to talk about on this issue. It's so It's so incredible and so much has happened over the last week. I think the Democratic Party's response, you know, relatedly has really been so much hand-wringing. It's been, well, I guess this is the law of the land now, since we know that's what's going to be in the opinion. Or, you know, there's been people too trying to figure out, well, maybe it's not, maybe it's not a real leak. Maybe it's fake. Maybe, well, no, okay. But this is a, a horrendous thing that this was leaked and just condemning the action of the leaker. When in fact, this is a completely heroic action that this person... You know, there haven't been many leaks in the Supreme Court's history and nothing like this where it was a full draft opinion was leaked, you know, before it was supposed to be published. This is a completely heroic action. And the Democrats' response has really just been, well, you should go vote. I'm going to play a clip of Amy Klobuchar, Senator Amy Klobuchar, speaking on Rachel Maddow's show. This was last week, the day after the leak happened. So this was last Tuesday on May 3rd. And her whole thing is just go vote. Here's the clip. If this is true, yes, we can be outraged, but we also have to plan. We are going into election year. We are going into the fall uh, where women's rights are going to be on the ballot. And so if nothing can get done in Washington because of Republican obstructionism, then the American people and women are going to have to vote and people who believe in choice are going to have to vote. I mean, the Democratic Party has had the majority in the House, the Senate, and the necessary additional vote for the Senate from the vice president, as well as, of course, the president being a Democrat, since Biden got into office. And not only, you know, has there been a bill that's been drafted, the Women's Health Protection Act, that would codify Roe v. Wade, but it also has been voted on. And it wasn't just Republicans obstructing this bill. It was voted 46 to 48 And there were two senators who were in the Democratic Party who did not vote for this bill, Joe Manchin and Bob Casey. I mean, A, first, she starts her statement saying, well, if this is true, again, right? Well, we don't don't know. Maybe it's not true. And then, you know, she starts her statement, well, if this is true, and then, you know, this is, of course, outrageous. But, yeah, it is outrageous. No, but it's outrageous. And we need to fight back about it. And the fact that her very first thing is, well, we're going to go vote at the ballot box. We're going to wait till November I'm sure nobody will need an abortion between now and November. And I'm sure no one has needed an abortion for the last 50 years as the right wing has ramped up, you know, all of their laws in various states that have, you know, limited this group of people from an abortion or limited that, that, you know, they've said over the years, oh, well, you can't give an abortion if you don't have this particular hospital paperwork or this particular hospital, you know, admittance protocol. You can't perform abortions in this facility because the hallways are too wide or too narrow, et cetera, et cetera. People have needed abortions through that whole process. Women have needed abortion access through that whole process. And in various parts of those 50 years, Democrats could have actually made this a priority and they haven't. 
Esther, I mean, what does this say? Well, I, as you were speaking, I was just thinking about the Hyde Amendment, which yes. has eliminated the ability of women receiving Medicaid to use those funds to receive an abortion. So we've we've already, even before this recent issue with the Supreme Court, we've already eliminated easy, rightful access to abortion care for uh, women who are poor, many working class women who are receiving Medicaid. So yeah, the Democrats have been asleep at the wheel on this issue, just like many others. And to claim that once again, we need to go out and vote for them because we can't afford to lose out on this issue. It ignores the fact that we've already lost out with them, that they have not provided any advocacy for women on this issue and have not ensured that women have safety, that they have care, that they we have reproductive justice. Because I think that's what we're talking about. And that's what we mean to talk about in terms of reproductive justice, not just for whether you have a child or not, but whether you have a right to take care of your child, whether you have the means to take care of your child, whether society makes it possible for women and men to take care of their children, to educate them, to feed them, to clothe them, to house them, and that we we have a right not to have our children snatched from us under these other extraneous illegal measures, you know, like that happened at the border or that happened through these so-called child protection services that often penalize women for being poor. They're good mothers, but they're poor. And so this is connected to this just whole larger issue of reproductive justice. And so, yeah, you're so right about that. Yeah, I mean, in a in a situation like this, I mean, the only thing that can possibly break the deadlock is mass struggle, is hundreds of thousands and millions of people going into the streets and demanding that the politicians take action and demanding that the Supreme Court justices back down. And I mean, we've seen that begin to emerge over the course of the last week. I mean, from the very day after the draft Supreme Court decision was leaked, was heroically leaked. I mean, thousands of people took to the streets in cities all across the country. And I mean, we've all been in the streets in the last week. The the energy is so high. There's especially a lot of participation, very militant and enthusiastic participation by young people in these demonstrations. There's a lot of vitality. There was over the weekend, there were major, major large demonstrations in lots of cities in lots of parts of the East Coast. It was, you know, rainstorms, but still people came out. People were extremely fired up to fight about this issue. And I don't think that enthusiasm is going anywhere. But the Democrats can't possibly call for people to take to the streets. Again, the one thing that can actually resolve this problem, because for one thing, they don't want to challenge the Supreme Court as an institution. The idea that through mass pressure, the Supreme Court could be forced to revise a draft ruling is something that goes against one of the fundamental tenets of ruling class politics in the United States since its founding. And that's the the myth, the obviously ridiculous myth, but the one that's promoted all the time, nonetheless, that the courts are above politics, they're above society, and they're simply a collection of experts in their ivory tower considering what's right and what's wrong, what the law says and what the law doesn't say, and objectively applying those judgments. That's obviously not how the courts work, but but that mythology is so important that for the Democrats to say, take to the streets and force the Supreme Court to back down, they're not going to do that. And they also, as you both are saying, don't want to do anything themselves, right? I mean, that's the other option, right? Like the Democrats could just pass a law codifying Roe into federal law. But 
the Democrats don't want to get rid of the filibuster. The filibuster is the undemocratic rule, just a rule, not a law, just a rule that requires 60 votes rather than 50% plus one to pass most pieces of legislation in the Senate. So the Democrats could decide to get rid of that and then subsequently decide without needing any Republican votes, just like they wouldn't need any Republican votes to get rid of the filibuster, to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which would legalize abortion at the federal level. They could do all of that, but they don't want to either. And so the only thing to do is to force them by creating so much disruption in society, so much mass mobilization, so much public expression of anger and outrage that they feel like the cost of not doing it is actually greater than doing it. And there's something important, I think, that really proves and brings home what you're saying, Walter, which is that at the moment, there are lots of clips going around on social media and lots of representatives in Congress, Democrats, you know, performing this outrage that many of the justices who Trump nominated when they were in their nomination hearings, you know, kind of spoke out of both sides of their mouths when asked about whether they would overturn or support Roe v. Wade. And of course, you know, when you really look at exactly what they said, it's like they're noncommittal, just like the Mississippi governor was when he was quizzed by Jake Tapper about whether he was coming for birth control next. He said, oh, our focus is on abortion, right? And so he's not answering the question. But this fake outrage from Democrat politicians, if they are actually mad and they actually believed that these justices would uphold Roe v. Wade as stare decisis, as precedent, as you know, historical rule of the Supreme Court would do, then why wouldn't they attack the institution right now? Why wouldn't they call for mass protest? If in fact they are not actually outraged because they knew this whole time that this was what was going to happen, then why didn't they actually force Manchin and Casey and Cinema to end the filibuster and pass the Women's Health Protection Act? You know, while at this moment, while as they say, oh, it's so important, we have the majority in the House and Senate, people will remember in 2020 how much the Democrats pushed that, oh, yeah, yeah, we got to go send all your money down to Georgia to get, you know, these last senators, these last Democratic senators in, and then we'll have a majority. Why didn't they push for that when it was voted in in February and it was voted, you know, it didn't pass 46, 48. Nearly 90 percent of U.S. counties are without a single abortion provider already. And five states are down to their last clinic. So don't pretend it's like all of a sudden we see this leak and now all of a sudden we need action on this. We have needed action on this. Roe was decided so tenuously not based on just plain, you have a right to abortion, but under the 14th Amendment, under the right to privacy, that there have been attacks on Roe v. Wade since the decision came down. So the Democrats needed to have acted on this, you know, for the last 50 years. And so it just rings so hollow when you hear Amy Klobuchar go up and say, well, gosh, golly, we really got to vote this November. That's what's going to do it. <laughs> I just want to say one more thing before we move off this topic. In the Wall Street Journal on Sunday, this article reads, quote, the main item on the docket is a Senate vote on Wednesday to take up legislation creating a federal statute that assures healthcare providers' ability to provide an abortion before a fetus is viable and that a patient has a right to undergo one. So that's referring to the Women's Health Protection Act. The vote has no chance of succeeding in the 50-50 Senate, but Democrats think disagreement with Republicans on the issue could help them at the polls, unquote. They're just writing it out plain because it's so, so clear. Right. So we're going to move on to some other stories. But, you know, this is obviously an incredibly important story. It's incredibly important that so many thousands, tens of thousands of people have been in the streets in the last week. It's obviously really vital that people continue to stay in the streets. You know, look around for any demonstrations happening near you. If there isn't one, 
take to the streets yourself. You know, I think this is just so incredibly important. Relatedly, there's also something that's going on in Alabama that started this past weekend that I, I want to highlight that's also about healthcare before we move on to some other international stories. The ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth under 19 in Alabama took effect on Sunday. The legislation makes gender-affirming medical treatment a crime punishable by up to 10 years in prison. And it's prohibiting something as simple as puberty blockers, as simple as hormones and medical procedures. And again, this is for youth under 19. There are trans youth all over this country who are very vulnerable in deep desperation trying to get this kind of medical help. And, you know, there are a lot of trans youth who are on the streets who have had to run away from home from, you know, places that were not safe. And this law is targeting children. I mean, it's really, really disgusting. And it's, you know, another incredibly important healthcare issue that we talk about. Yeah, I mean, these these right-wing bigots are attacking everybody. I mean, this is like a highly, highly organized, very well-funded political machine that's going after so many rights. I mean, they're going after the right to an abortion. The right wing is going after in a particularly cowardly way, as you're saying, targeting trans youth, trans children, preventing them from getting health care. I mean, we've got to unite. We need a united fight back struggle against these far right fundamentalist bigots who are on the offensive and they feel like they're winning. They're going to get bolder and bolder and bolder until they're stopped. And it's it's really only that militant fight back in the streets that's going to stop them, which, you know, it's incredibly important that that continue. Walter, there's another an extremely important topic that's been ongoing. Of course, the war in Ukraine is ongoing. The United States has continued to send money, has continued to send weapons, has continued to send officials who, you know, including a secret visit from First Lady Jill Biden very recently, you know, and we don't know what Jill Biden said, but when Nancy Pelosi was there, she, you know, essentially pushed the country of Ukraine to keep fighting, to keep dying, to keep having people in this war. What are some of the most recent updates? Yeah, that's right. Well, the fighting is raging, as you're saying, thanks in large part to the enormous supply of weapons that the United States and its NATO allies have flooded Ukraine with. They clearly do not want this war to end. They're more or less openly saying that. There is another $33 billion on the way, U.S. taxpayer money, that Congress is sort of hammering out the details exactly how to pass this massive package. $20 billion of that is you know, weapons directly, and, and the rest is essentially subsidies to the Ukrainian government to allow it to function and wage the war politically. So yeah, I mean, this is the logic of escalation. The danger of escalation remains very much present. On the economic front, there seems to be another major escalation in the works, and that's a European Union-wide embargo on Russian oil. The United States, the Western countries have been trying to essentially exile Russia from the global economy to make it impossible for Russia to do business with other countries. But one of the most difficult pieces of that is the fact that so many European countries, which are very politically hostile to Russia and supportive of the Ukrainian government, actually are, are very dependent on different sources of Russian energy, coal, oil, and natural gas. Coal was you know, widely considered to be sort of the easiest of the Russian energy sources to embargo. Natural gas, probably the hardest, and oil kind of in the middle. There's still negotiations going on about 
what accommodations could be made for countries in Europe that are especially dependent. Hungary, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, now Bulgaria are asking for exceptions. So negotiations as of the time of this recording are ongoing, but it's related to something that we've been talking about a lot on the show, and that's how the single globalized capitalist world economy that took shape in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union when you know neoliberal capitalism reigned supreme all across the globe, that's starting to come apart and that the world economy is dividing in two or, or maybe in multiple parts. And these sanctions are, are accelerating that trend. The last thing about Ukraine, you know, Monday was Victory Day. Victory Day commemorates the defeat of the Nazis in World War II, a victory for the peoples of the whole world against fascism that came at the cost of enormous suffering and death. Victory Day is a very big public celebration in Russia and in many other countries every year. But under the current circumstances, it's really inseparable from the present day conflict going on in Ukraine. And so the historical distortion that we're seeing in the mainstream press about the reality of how Nazism was defeated, I think is really especially striking right now. So I mean, just a couple of facts of history that are important to keep in mind. One, the power that was primarily responsible for the defeat of Nazi Germany was the Soviet Union. The Red Army and the Soviet people, at the cost of 27 million lives, 27 million lives, took on the vast majority of the German armed forces, the Nazi army in World War II, and the other allied fascist armies of continental Europe, defeated them, liberated, well, they would have liberated the entire continent, but it became clear to the imperialist powers, the so-called democratic imperialist powers like the United States and the UK, that the Red Army could essentially defeat Hitler all by themselves. And so what's now known as D-Day happened in June 1944, less than a year before the war ended. You know, that's when the other countries sort of got in the game. That's something that's completely left out and distorted in light of all of the anti-Russian propaganda going on right now. And it's also important to remember that Russians and Ukrainians were part of one country. They were both part of the Soviet Union at the time, and Russians and Ukrainians fought shoulder to shoulder against the fascist invaders, the Nazi invaders, and defeated them. Vladimir Putin gave a speech at the celebration in Moscow. I just want to read a, a couple sentences from what he said. Despite disagreements in international relations, Russia has always advocated the creation of a system of equal and indivisible security, a system that is vital for the entire international community. In December last year, we proposed the conclusion of an agreement on security guarantees. Russia called on the West to enter an honest dialogue in search of reasonable compromise solutions to take each other's interests into account. It was all in vain. I mean, one doesn't have to be a supporter of Putin's decision to invade Ukraine to recognize the fundamental truth in that. I mean, the plan A for the Russian government was to negotiate a compromise solution, one in which Ukraine would be a neutral country, not a base for NATO or NATO's advanced weapons systems, and to essentially engage in what could have been a mutual demilitarization in Eastern Europe instead of a devastating war. But the United States and NATO had no interest in that, and they continue to have no interest in that. He goes on to say in that speech on Victory Day, NATO countries did not want to listen to us, meaning that they in fact had entirely different plans, and we saw this. 
Openly, preparations were underway for another punitive operation in Donbass, the invasion of our historical lands, including Crimea, where I think in the United States media, it's been played as though Russia came in with lots of troops and forcibly took Crimea, when in fact there were referendums and the you know majority Russian-speaking and Russian area of Crimea said, no, we want to be a part of Russia, not a part of Ukraine with the right-wing leadership here. I'm going to keep quoting from the speech. In Kiev, they announced the possible acquisition of nuclear weapons. The NATO bloc began actively taking military control of territories adjacent to ours. As such, an absolutely unacceptable threat to us was systemically created and moreover directly on our borders, unquote. I mean, we don't support on this show, we don't support what the invasion that Russia has done. And also, when you listen to the reasons and the words of the leader of Russia right now, it also, you know, you can understand why this has happened. You can understand that the West played a direct role in this. And it's so important when you listen to officials talking, you know, as talking heads on the on corporate media, they never mention those points that you both raised, Nicole and Walter. They never talk about the negotiations that Russia was involved in. They don't talk about 2014. They don't talk about the coup that the U.S. fomented in Ukraine. We're supposed to start history on, you know, February 24th or back in February when this invasion occurred. And I just wanted to say in terms of the news that you mentioned, Walter, that when the G7 put these new sanctions on Russia over the weekend, afterward, is very telling because some of the members of the G7, then they say aside that, well, we won't be able to really boycott, you know, Russian oil or gas. That process will take some time. And we already know that Slovenia and Belarus, in terms of the EU, at least, they have already said that, you know, that's a, a non-starter for them. So this supposed unity that they keep talking about in terms of this united front against Russia is not really as united as they think, especially when it comes to the economics. And the ruble, I think on Friday, was at its best ever against the dollar. So this plan to cripple Russia economically isn't going so well. That part of the war, the economic war, is not going so well in terms of what the U.S. and Blinken and all of the the architects of it had imagined. And Walter... There are other consequences. There are other things that are happening because of this war and because of the, you know, the, the U.S.'s continued push in this war that I, I want to ask you about. And we've talked about this on the show a couple, I think, a couple of weeks ago, but it's continuing. I'm reading from a New York Times article and it starts, the Biden administration is quietly pressing the Taiwanese government to order American-made weapons that would help its small military repel a seaborne invasion by China rather than weapons designed for conventional set-piece warfare. The U.S. campaign to shape Taiwan's defenses has grown in urgency since the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine ordered in late February by President Vladimir Putin. The war has convinced Washington and Taipei that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan in the coming years is now a potential danger, and that a smaller military with the right weapons that has adopted us out of where is, I mean, it seems like it's out of nowhere that the that the press is now all of a sudden and the U.S. is all now all of a sudden saying, oh, well, now that we're seeing Russia dry their, draw their red lines and then because those red lines were not respected and there was no conversation, now there's a war. Now we're assuming China's going to invade Taiwan? Like, help us connect the dots. And how do we push back on this warmongering logic at the United States? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it shows that the United States government considers itself to be engaged in a in a global struggle to stay on top, to stay on top of the world order, to continue to be the dominant world hegemon, determining the course of events, not just in their own country, but in all other countries as well. The U.S. government is explicit about this, that the two states in the world that pose the biggest challenge to that position, that dominant global position that they enjoy are Russia and China, but really China more so than Russia. You know, China has a population that's, I think, about 10 times as large as Russia's. Uh, Its economy is much, much, much larger. It's on track to become the largest economy in the world. You know, China is is really a bigger threat to U.S. global dominance when you, you know, all things considered than Russia is. And so I think it shows how any kind of political or military or diplomatic strategic lesson that the managers of U.S. empire can take away from the ongoing war in Ukraine, the first thing they think of is how can we put this to use against our biggest enemy, which is China. So yeah, I mean, it it shows that, again, the United States is the fundamentally aggressive power. I mean, the end of the day, what they're trying to do is stay on top keep their boot on the neck of the whole world. And if if there is any sort of lessons that they can glean from what's going on right now, they're going to repurpose it as fast as they can against China. And the issue of Taiwan and China's sovereignty over Taiwan is an issue of such existential importance to the Chinese government that that's the logical pressure point for them to immediately jump to. The United States, as we've talked about, has, you know, been putting sanctions on all sorts of countries all over the world, has military bases and military personnel all over the world, and is continuously pushing this war in Ukraine, as well as, Walter, thank you for the great explanation, you know, clearly pushing and trying to pretend like China is a warmonger as well. Esther, the United States has long had an embargo, a strangling embargo on Cuba, essentially trying to completely strangle their revolution that has allowed so many people to have basic rights, a lot of a lot of them like what we were just talking about, uh, you know, in, in terms of being pro-life, in terms of being able to have reproductive justice, which people have in Cuba. And now the United States is excluding from the summit of the Americas, Cuba and other Latin American countries that they disagree with. Right. So I just returned from Cuba and it was... It's- always an eye-opening and just inspiring trip to go to a country where socialism is being practiced, you know, to a country that is committed to socialism, that is committed to caring for all of its people and giving rights to all of its people that we are fighting for here that, you know, we thought if we had these rights, that they were won, like some in my lifetime, like voting rights, for example. But we have to keep fighting to either maintain them or get them back. But it's very inspiring to be there on May Day. Cuba is one of the few places that celebrates May Day with such exuberance, with this massive parade down Plaza de la Revolución. And, you know, millions of people marching all around the country to support the idea of that workers provide the engine that makes the country move, that makes all of our lives move, that we, we provide the labor to make everything happen, you know. And so 
to be there and part of that inspirational setting. And then at the same time hear that, you know, this government that I live under is doing one more thing to hurt Cuba. In addition to the 60 year blockade, the 243 economic coercive measures that Trump put on the country that Biden has maintained and in some ways expanded. In addition to that, they are trying to exclude Cuba from the ninth summit of the Americas, which is planned for Los Angeles in June. I think it's June 8th through the 10th. And there was a statement put out while I was there, put out by Cuban foreign minister Bruno Rodriguez Parilla, and basically denouncing the U.S. for this action. And You know, it's so poignant in a way because, you know, Cuba, more than the U.S. and any other country in this hemisphere, has been so active in supporting the world during this pandemic, during the, you know, sending doctors throughout the world. They developed five vaccines, which they are attempting to share with more countries, but even that is being blocked by these criminal U.S. sanctions. But anyway, I I mentioned that because a big part of the summit is to talk about health care because we are still in the pandemic. And the fact that the United States, uh, Blinken and his ilk are trying to exclude Cuba is truly criminal. I think also exclude Nicaragua and I believe also Venezuela, if I'm correct. But we have to say in response to this, the Cuban officials that I heard speak there encouraged and were praising the efforts of groups like the Answer Coalition, Code Pink, other of our colleagues to support something called the People Summit that will happen at the same time in June. And this will bring together, again, workers, working people from around the United States, and in particularly Los Angeles, where we know the homeless situation is people being unhoused is a critical emergency. And it really draws out the hypocrisy of the U.S. in trying to, you know, stand up and puff his chest out as this this example of of the best type of system to live under and then exclude Cuba, which makes sure its people have a home. But anyway, if people want to find out more about that and get involved, there's information with the Answer Coalition, but the People Summit also has its own website. And that is peoplesummit2022.org, peoplesummit 2022.org. And this is just another way that we can show solidarity with Cuba, Nicaragua, other countries, Venezuela, and their right for sovereignty, their right to have their own system, right? The same way that the United States is supposedly supporting Ukraine's right to have its own system or have its own sovereignty. But this is in our hemisphere. And this is one way that we can support, you know, our comrades right here at home. And you can also follow the People's Summit on social media at People's Summit 22 on both Twitter and Instagram. And they've been putting out some great interviews with people who will be attending, with people who are members of the some of the convening organizations. Really, really exciting event that's coming up. Let's go to a, a different country. There's elections going on in a couple places, including in Northern Ireland. The Sinn Féin, the left-wing political party that has long been for Irish nationalism, for a unified Ireland, won the most seats of any party in the Northern Ireland Assembly for the first time last week, 27 of the 90 seats. The second party was the Democratic Unionist Party, 
they are pro having Northern Ireland remain a part of Britain when the rest of Ireland split off. Let's go to another country. There are elections that just happened in Northern Ireland where Sinn Féin, the left-wing party that is in support of Irish unification, but ran on a lot of really important issues that we've been talking about today, about a lot of basic rights for people. They won the most seats of any party in the Northern Ireland Assembly for the first time last week. They won 27 of 90 seats, the second most party that is more on the on the right-wing side of things that wants Northern Ireland to stay in their within the United Kingdom, they won 25 seats. And so now the very exciting part of this is that Sinn Féin now has the right to name the first minister, but essentially there won't be a formed government until the second highest party, the Democratic Unionist Party, agrees to name the deputy first minister. And the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, their opposition to naming a a deputy, their opposition to Sinn Féin, their opposition to pretty much everything right now revolves around trade rules related to Brexit. I know you probably haven't heard the word Brexit in a while, but it is still deeply affecting people, especially in in Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland, just to remind people about how this part of the world looks, Northern Ireland is a part of Britain, but it's on the same island as Ireland, as the Republic of Ireland. And Northern Ireland, because it's part of Britain, is no longer in the EU because of Brexit, while the Republic of Ireland remains in the EU. So the UK has put in customs and border checks on some goods that are going into Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. And the DUP, the party that's now objecting to these border rules and is now essentially saying we won't, you know, we're going to not let this government form because we're objecting to these border rules, was actually heavily pro-Brexit. They played a significant role in helping Brexit succeed, and they were involved in a lot of the post-Brexit talks between Britain and the EU that resulted in these border rules. And they were in support of these border rules at the beginning of this selection and then realized that their base, that a lot of people did not like these border rules, so then they switched. Their line is really quite a chaotic mess. And essentially, at this point, if this can't get resolved within the next six months, a new vote might be triggered. But I think, you know, the really exciting thing, you know, clearly people in in Northern Ireland, we're seeing through this right wing party, the DUP, and we're seeing through their flipping and flopping all over this, all over this important issue. And so Sinn Féin, for the first time, won 27 of the 90 seats, the most seats of any party in the assembly. Walter, how do you see this playing out over the next six months or, or longer? And, you know, how do you think Brexit played into this? Yeah, I mean, this is an, a very important issue. I mean, it's something that raises the possibility of the unification of Ireland, that the entirety of the island of Ireland will be independent and free from British colonial rule. For hundreds of years, there's been an Irish national struggle for independence. In the early 20th century, most of Ireland won its independence. The UK continued to control the northern six counties of the island. There has a large population of quote-unquote loyalists, people who favor remaining part of the UK. So the struggle has taken many different in the later parts of the 20th century. This was primarily an armed struggle, but that armed struggle came to an end with something called the Good Friday Agreement in the 1990s. And that essentially set up a power-sharing agreement in Northern Ireland where the region would have a significant degree of autonomy and that the unionist parties, the parties that want to remain part of the UK, and the Republican parties or the nationalist parties, the parties that support Irish independence and oppose British colonialism, would essentially be forced to share authority, to share seats 
and positions of influence in the local government. And as you said, Nicole, whichever party got the most number of seats would control the first minister, sort of like the governor of Northern Ireland. And for the first time, that's Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin was the political party of the Irish Republican Army. I mean, of the main armed struggle group that was fighting against British colonialism during that period that I was talking about before the Good Friday Agreement. So so this is hugely significant. Many of these right-wing unionist parties are, you know, essentially connected in one way or another to these these far-right paramilitary groupings that existed, you know, again, prior to this agreement. And it remains to be seen how this will fundamentally be resolved. I mean, the only just and democratic way to resolve this would be to hold a vote, to hold a referendum that's so long been the demand of the Sinn Féin party and the broader Republican anti-colonial movement to let people in Northern Ireland decide for themselves if they want to continue living under British rule or if they want to be reunified with Ireland. And I think the, the type of institutional crisis that may be on the horizon that you were describing, Nicole, could give even more impetus even more momentum behind the demand for such a vote. And there were another set of really important elections in the Philippines, Walter. Give us some of the history and what happened in the Philippine presidential election. Yeah, that's right. So I I mean, a, a big threat on the horizon to people in the Philippines, anybody who stands up for human rights, for democratic rights, for the rights of workers and peasants, students, women, people to be you know, free from state violence, police violence, because it appears that Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has won the presidential election in the Philippines. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., of course, is the son of Ferdinand Marcos, and he was a bloodthirsty dictator, an infamous dictator that ruled the Philippines from 1965 to 1986. His regime was completely backed by U.S. imperialism. The Philippines was a direct colony of the United States from 1898 to 1946 from the quote-unquote Spanish-American War, which was also a genocidal war against the people of the Philippines up until the immediate aftermath of World War II. And the United States has exercised neocolonial influence in the Philippines ever since. Perhaps their most infamous neocolonial puppet was Ferdinand Marcos. His regime was overthrown in 1986 by a people's uprising, and he fled to Hawaii. He was given safe haven in the United States, where he lived out the rest of his days. He was never brought to justice for all the the murder and the torture, the harassment, the terrorizing of activists, the theft, the open corruption that took place under his rule, because he was protected by his patrons, by the United States. And his son shares his politics and defends his legacy. So people, I think, are bracing for a real struggle ahead. The popular movements, the people's movements in the Philippines are very, very strong as well. And they definitely know how to struggle. And people are, are ready for what comes. And so I think that it's, it's very important for progressive people in the United States to, to follow this and oppose all U.S. interference in the Philippines and show solidarity with the progressive movements and activists that are potentially facing serious repression. Absolutely. It's so important when you live in the United States to participate in anti-imperialist action to push back against the U.S. imperialist state and the U.S. military abroad and their crimes. I want to turn to a story that is here in the United States that is affecting people here in the United States 
And it actually really does tie into the Roe v. Wade discussion we started the show with. Four four people have died now at Rikers Island jail, you know, jail and holding facility in New York already this year. Four people. And just over the weekend, a 25-year-old man who is homeless is believed to have committed suicide at Rikers Island. Deshaun Carter is his name. He was found hanging from a window in his cell just two days after having been transferred back to Rikers from a state psychiatric hospital. And when he was returned to Rikers late last week, mental health officials at the jail cleared him to be held in a general population housing in GenPop, despite having just been at a state psychiatric hospital. And now we can very clearly see he was not in a place to be in GenPop, was not in a place you know, to be anywhere in the Rikers facility because he committed suicide. But I think, you know, this is not only important to talk about, but to also just show, I mean, the way that this, it's so cyclical. The reporting on this issue says that the recently appointed commissioner of New York City's Department of Correction, Louis Molina, has less than two weeks to present a plan to address the crisis at Rikers or risk a federal takeover of the jail. I'm reading from a New York Times article about this. But even if there is a federal takeover of the jail, in 2014, the Department of Justice said that Rikers had a, quote, deep-seated culture of violence, unquote, in which inmates suffered, quote, broken jaws, broken orbital bones, broken noses, long bone fractures, and lacerations requiring stitches, unquote. I mean, Rikers has been an, a horrendous facility for a long time, but the world started looking in, in much more intensively at the notorious Rikers jail in 2015 when Khalif Browder hanged himself after being held in horrendous conditions before his trial. Again, this is a jail. So this is all before, you know, all that's happened to somebody if you're in Rikers is that you've been arrested. You might have seen a judge maybe, but a lot of people haven't even seen a judge. He was held in these conditions before his trial for more than three years. He kept seeing a judge, he kept seeing a judge, and he kept pleading not guilty to his crime, which, by the way, the only evidence that they had was one person claiming eyewitness testimony, and later on he recanted. And Khalif Browder attempted suicide three times, as people may remember. One of those times, he was goaded to do so by guards. So when I read an article that says, well, the commissioner of Department of Correction in New York is going to have to present a plan within two weeks to address this crisis. Well, we've been here before. Oh, if he doesn't do this, he's going to risk a federal takeover. Well, the Department of Justice in 2014 knew that, you know, that was eight years ago, knew that this was happening, knew that... Guards were egging on inmates fighting each other, knew that people were being held without actual evidence against them. It, it's just such a disgusting, disgusting place. And but it, and it's not just Rikers like this is happening all over the country. And again, very similar to Roe v. Wade. I mean, if we aren't in the streets talking about this, if we aren't building a mass movement to deal with this, then, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. I want to end today, before we go to you, Walter, about the liberation news stories of the week, I want to end on a happier note on a, a really encouraging story. Esther, Christian Smalls, the president of the Amazon Labor Union, testified last week in Congress. You know, Congress is made, is made up of mostly millionaires, is made up of lawyers, doctors, some, you know, some of them made up of weapons consultants and, you know, people who, it's not made up of workers. It's not made up of of people like us. But but last week, a worker, an organizer, a labor union organizer was in Congress testifying. And Chris Mills was testifying in front of the Senate Banking Committee. And I, I want to talk about this because Chris Mills is who was fired from Amazon for organizing. And then 
kept organizing, has been out of a job for two years. And the facilities where he was organizing have now successfully unionized in Staten Island. I want to play two clips of him testifying because I, I just think it's so, so exciting and so encouraging. This first one, he's speaking directly to Senator, deeply right-wing Senator Lindsey Graham. It's very short. I just had to pull it because I really love it. And then we'll, I'll play a longer one right after that. Well, first of all, I want to address Mr. Graham. It sounded like you was talking about more of the companies and the businesses in your speech, but you forgot that the people are the ones who make this these companies operate. <laughs> And excitingly, there were people behind him in the audience, you know, in the very austere looking Senate hearing room who were just nodding along with what Chris was saying. And to be clear, he's providing testimony about all of the money and the trickery and the bias that Amazon engaged in during the campaign. So I'm going to play a a longer clip. And then, Esther, I'll just ask you to respond to that. As the current interim president of the Amazon Labor Union, who represent 8,300 workers in Staten Island, an uh, independent worker-led union that won their election on April 1st. I'm going to tell you this. Uh, we organized for over a year. And throughout the course of that year, Amazon spent millions of dollars, as you mentioned, Senator Standards. Um, myself, including a few other organizers, was arrested outside for organizing, arrested for delivering food to their coworkers. Thousands of workers across this country who are in the process of organizing, who have the desire to organize in the United States, um, we want to feel that we have protections. <clears throat> we want to feel that the government is allowing us to use our constitutional rights to organize. There's clearly defined legal process to do this, and workers like us have the rights protected by the First Amendment and the National Labor Relations Act. And even though we may have won, we did everything right, pressuring Amazon to recognize our victory and comply with our legal obligation to meet us at the bargaining table. But Amazon is refusing to do so. To me, it just sounds like the corporations have the control and they control whatever they want. They break the law, they get away with it. They know that already, that breaking the law during these election campaigns won't be resolved during the election campaigns. So they purposely continue to break the law. I want to just end off by saying this. We need to pass the PRO Act so that workers are protected and workers are encouraged to organize. And if that don't work, you know, I'm going to let you know right now that on behalf of the Amazon Labor Union and the hundreds of thousands of workers across this country, that we will continue to organize. This is not a left or right thing. This is a working class issue. And the workers at the bottom are the ones who make these corporations go. Esther, he talked about in that clip, and that was his opening statement um, to the Senate Banking Committee, he talked about all of the anti-labor actions that Amazon took. I mean, they have won, you know, against all odds. The workers have won. And by the way, I should say Amazon is now firing managers at the recently unionized warehouse. I mean, one reporter was quoted as saying, if you can't fire your recently unionized warehouse staff for unionizing, then I guess you fire the warehouse managers for failing to stop the unionization instead. And while, you know, this is obviously a big challenge that we're going to need to deal with, this is still, I mean, Amazon is doing this because they're being confronted with workers' power and because of how successful the workers are. But Esther, you looked into some of the complaints that were happening, some of the things that Amazon was doing. What were some of those? Well, 
I think we may have talked about some of these in past shows, but we had an attorney for the National Labor Relations Board come out with a a statement not that long ago, basically talking about how she was recommending that Amazon's practice, as well as the practice of Starbucks, of holding workers in what are called captive audience meetings, she was going to recommend that these be made illegal because as Chris Smalls has said in previous statements, that the workers on Staten Island were subjected to meetings, several meetings a day. And sometimes these would be every 20 minutes, he said, and you would be made to hear and listen to all this anti-worker, anti-union propaganda from Amazon, basically threatening you in many cases against forming a union. And so I do know that that is one of the key complaints that Smalls had that the workers at Amazon had against the corporation. And on last week, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, also filed a, what they called a sweeping complaint against Starbucks. And they accused Starbucks of the same types of tactics, also surveillance, termination, closing entire stores that are attempting to organize. As we know, after Buffalo was the first store, a store in Buffalo was the first store to unionize. 50 Starbucks locations have since unionized, voted to unionize, and usually by overwhelming majorities of the vote of workers. So we know that these are the types of tactics in addition to these captive audience meetings that the NLRB is looking at. So in addition to this complaint filed Friday, as you mentioned, Amazon on Thursday, fired the managers, fired a dozen managers at the fulfillment center in Staten Island where the workers did decide to organize. So in other words, they can't impact these workers anymore or not in an obvious way because they are still not meeting their obligations to meet the workers at the bargaining table. But they have fired a dozen managers And the New York Times story said they must be fired because they allowed these workers to organize on their watch. In other words, they weren't bringing the hammer down hard enough to violate these workers' rights so that they would be scared to organize. So these are just things that we need to continue to watch and also support the workers who have organized in their struggle to bring Amazon to the table because we know that the fight is just beginning. That, you know, when I got back from Cuba, I was thinking about this in this larger sweep because, you know, you have all these rights that are rights in Cuba, but there are so many rights passed within my lifetime that the ruling class and their lackey politicians and courts are attempting to roll back, you know, abortion rights, voting rights, labor rights. So even though these workers have won this major victory, the corporation with its money and the political sway that they hold, they're going to try to not fulfill what they're obligated to, which is to meet these workers at the table and, you know, hammer out this contract that the workers are entitled to, that they have a legal right to. Yeah. And and Walter, the the PRO Act that Chris Smalls mentioned in his testimony 
that would strengthen a lot of these rights and deal with a lot of what Esther was just talking about, these limitations with the NLRB. It hasn't even been taken up for a vote yet. There are senators out there, Democrat senators, who have not supported this. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's kind of a repeat of what happened with the Employee Free Choice Act under the Obama administration. Uh, the Employee Free Choice Act and the PRO Act are not exactly the same thing. I believe the PRO Act has, has even more extensive protections for workers' rights. But it was a similar script where the Democrats campaigned on being you know, totally pro-labor, will be totally pro-worker if you vote for us, and will support this law that will make it much, much, much easier for workers to form a union. At that point, it was called the Employee Free Choice Act. But it was completely abandoned as soon as Obama took office, even though the Democrats had a filibuster-proof majority in Congress. It seems like, you know, the Democrats under the Biden administration or I mean, Biden was in the White House at the time, are trying to pull off fundamentally the same maneuver, promise a ton to the labor movement on the campaign trail and then completely turn their backs on them upon taking office. But, you know, the the growing strength of the labor movement, the fact that major corporations like Amazon and Starbucks are being targeted by successful unionization campaigns, the the surging support just across society among workers in society, whether you're currently organized or not, for the idea of unions and organized labor. I mean, the willingness to strike, increased willingness to strike, all of these things are very positive signs of vitality for the labor movement. And so I think that the fight for these types of important laws, legislative measures that would make it a reality, you know, make workers' right to unionize, to organize on the job a reality, the pressure to follow through on those promises will only grow. I think that's exactly right. And it was only because of the successes of the Amazon labor union and then the strong labor movement right now more broadly that Chris Smalls was even testifying and getting this you know, national media attention, which is really incredible and a testament to the hard work of all the, of all the laborers and, and workers in those facilities. Walter, let's go. You're the editor of Liberation News, which has put out a lot of really great stories in the last week. Let's go to the top three stories that you recommend our listeners take a look at. Yeah, thanks. Well, I wanted to start with the statement put out by the PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, after the Supreme Court draft leaked. It's titled, Supreme Court Declares War on Women and Abortion Rights Take to the Streets. If you need you know, a relatively short piece that gets to the heart of the issue to help explain to people, to your friends, family, colleagues, coworkers, neighbors, why this is such an important fight. I highly recommend this statement. Another article that was recently published on liberationnews.org about the struggle for abortion rights is titled, Activists Defy Bans on Abortion Pills. This goes into some really important, interesting helpful history about the fight for abortion rights, including efforts by women to make reproductive care available before Roe v. Wade when it was illegalized. Like the the Jane Collective, for instance, is a prominent example of this. So I highly recommend this article, Activists Defy Bans on Abortion Pills. And finally, I want to highlight an article related to the labor movement titled Thousands of Alaska Airlines Pilots to Take Strike Vote. The strike vote is going on now about whether or not to authorize the first strike in the history of the union against Alaska Airlines pilots demanding that uh, completely inhumane, outrageous scheduling policies, um, work policies that require people to pull nine to 12 hour days, sometimes 60 to 75 hour weeks be ended. You can check out these articles and a lot more 
every day on liberationnews.org. Well, that's all we've got today. We do have our regular schedule this week with Richard Wolf, who will be on tomorrow with our regular show, The Capitalism in Crisis. And then Wednesday night, we will have The Real Story, where we'll be talking about a lot of the issues going on in China, including a report really diving into how China has really been able to bring people out of poverty and how deep poverty is completely eliminated now in China. A very exciting episode that I know a lot of us are looking forward to. And then, of course, that will be released Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern, as it always is. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.